0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. You want to dance, don't you? (laughs) I do. Um, There are not many people that do a lot of talking about non-inflammatory pain syndrome. It's not usually a topic of conversation at dinner or stuff you shoot the breeze about. However... Most of us in this room are familiar with what we call growing pains. Um, You've either had them or maybe you've experienced one of your kids having them. Um, I know I've spent a lot of nights in Nathan's bed rubbing his legs and his knees. And um, I don't really wonder why since he's 13 and pretty much as tall as me now. Um, But growing pains, they're weird. Um, There's a lot of argument now that they're actually not From growing, um, but I think that's hogwash. Um, But here's the thing Um, growing pains don't just happen in little kids' legs. Anything or anyone that experiences growth is going to experience the pains that come along with it. And the church is not exempt from this. In the book of Acts, the church begins to grow. the church begins and then it begins to grow. And I mean grow. It begins to grow rapidly and seriously. And so along with that come these growing pains. However, when you add to that, that the church has an enemy that not only wants to stifle that growth, but ultimately wants to destroy it, This can cause some serious pain. This can cause some serious problems. However, as followers of Jesus Christ and as the people of God, we have an understanding that there is potential in every problem. You're going to hear me say that probably a few times this morning. There's potential in every problem because, you see, if we are the church that Jesus said, I will build my church... If we belong to him and we're the people with whom Paul has said that God is working for the good in all things, all things can't exempt anything from there. If we're those people, then any obstacle, any issue, any problem that we face is a potential. It's an opportunity for God to work. The question is, what do we see? Do we see the potential? And are we willing to work for it, risk for it, fight for it? So going back to the issue of growing pains, what do those look like in the church? Well, if a church begins to grow, um, and, and on the one hand, I think we can get caught up in numbers too much. At the same time, let's be realistic. Numbers tell stories. Um, When more people come to something, when more people show up for something, it it says that something's worth value here. So if a church begins growing because disciples are being made, more people are going to be present. Um, More people, more needs. That's just the way it works. Well, this morning we're wrapping up our foundation series And we visit this series once or twice a year looking at different things that are part of the foundation of who we are as a church, what we believe, why we do what we do. This go-round, we've been talking about evidences that we are building our foundation on Christ and that he is the builder. We've talked about genuine community. Last week, we talked about authentic boldness. Well, this week we're going to see that another evidence that we're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ in our lives and that he is the one building his church. One of the evidences of that is also servant leadership. That servant leadership begins and continues to multiply within the body of Christ and the people of God. So now go back here. More people more needs, more multiplication, if you will, more growth. What that's going to also mean, though, is more opposition and disruption from the enemy. One thing that is fairly common knowledge is the the best way to have an opportunity um, against an enemy is to know their tactics, to know their weapons. What is it they're going to do? How are they going to do it? You and I, we need to know and understand the enemy that we face. So what are Satan's tactics against us? Well, we saw one of them last week in Acts chapter 4, Acts 3 and 4, really. Persecution. What happens? Well, uh, Peter and John get arrested. Um, They get questioned, interrogated. Um, The church begins to be persecuted. Persecuted. But this doesn't really go over the way that the persecutors planned it because what happens as a result, the people of God come together, they cry out to God and pray. The place where they pray is shaken. They get more boldness than they had before and the church continues to multiply. So that didn't work out the way Satan planned it, I guarantee you. All right, so we've got to come up with another strategy, tactic, weapon. In Acts chapter five, the church is growing and people are becoming so generous that they're coming to the apostles, whether it's with a a bag of money or a deed that says, hey, I got 10 acres, I only use five of them. If somebody else needs some land, give it to people. People are just coming and bringing what they own and saying, whoever else needs this, let them have it. Well, this husband and wife show up And they're bringing their land, they're bringing an offering. And they're painting this picture that they're bringing all of it. They're trying to look better in the eyes of the apostles. But they're lying through their teeth. And see, God is much more concerned with your integrity and my integrity than my offering. And what God does, and this sounds a bit harsh, but there are points in history where God tries to communicate This is how serious I take sin. My son went to the cross for it. He strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. Boom. And they have to drag their bodies out of town and bury them. Well, let's think about that. That could cause some like really, really, um, that could be like a real downer on the growth that's going on. You know, two people struck dead bringing in their their, uh, offering that could have had a real detrimental effect possibly on the church. But but what happens as a result? Well, in Acts chapter 5 verse 12, it says, "Many signs and wonders were continuing to be done among the people, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord." So, Satan tries persecution. That doesn't work. Satan tries corruption. That doesn't work either. I got to come up with another tactic. This one might be the most difficult for us to see. And the reason is because it happens among us and between us, and maybe most painfully, within us. And it's dissension. There's nothing that the enemy loves to do more than to plant seeds of dissension and division among and between God's people. I'll just get them to fight and destroy one another. That's one of his favorite things to do. And this could be a problem, right? Unless we understand that there is potential in every problem as the people of God. So look with me this morning in Acts 6. If you did not have your Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles all over the place on the communion tables. We would love for you to grab one of those. Um, We have some out in the breezeway as well that if you don't own a Bible, we want to put one in your hands before you leave today. So join me in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. At this point in time, there are two primary groups in the church in Jerusalem. There's the Hebraic Jews or the Hebrews and the Hellenist. The Hebrews are the people that they've been there. They've been in Jerusalem uh, even before Jesus came while Jesus was there, and now. The Hellenists are people who, after Christ, uh, maybe they came to Jerusalem for Passover or Pentecost. They're from areas outside of Jerusalem that we may today refer to as Palestine. Um, They've come, and they've just decided to stay. They're part of the body of Christ. They're part of the church. However, just being honest... They're from somewhere else. They're a little bit different, all right? They definitely would have been the minority. The Hellenist Jews were definitely the minority. Now, there's no evidence anywhere that this happened intentionally, but somewhere along the way, the Hellenist widows began kind of being overlooked as they were distributing food and they were taking care of these people. They they weren't being taken care of. And so someone comes and tattles. Someone comes and tells the apostles. Modern day equivalent. Someone comes and complains to the pastors. That never happens, ever. They come and complain to the pastors. Now, I don't want to make light of this, though. This is a very serious problem. But again, you know, I've said this before. There's potential in every problem. Verse 2. So the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles were saying for us to involve ourselves, for for us to get bogged down in, in the details of who's getting what food and like, how are we spending every penny that comes in for that to happen? We're going to be distracted and taken away from the thing that God has called us to do. God has called us, if you will, to focus on the spiritual needs of the people. God has called us to preach the word to the people, to minister the word among and with the people, and to pray with and for and over the people. That's what he's called us to. And if we keep getting sucked into all of these other things, we're not going to be able to focus on this. So we need to be able to focus on the people's spiritual needs. We need someone else that can come along beside us and focus on their physical needs. Now, before we talk about the solution that they give, I think it's important to identify some things that they are not saying. Because when you first read what the apostles say, uh, it can come across as maybe a bit arrogant or condescending. And that's not the heart of or the voice being used here. So, what are they not saying? Well, the first thing that they are not saying is what we're doing is more important. As if to say, Oh, my heavenly days. Who cares about widows getting food? I mean, give me a break. Somebody just take care of this, do something about it, but don't bother us with it. That is not what's being said here at all. In fact, By taking the action that they did, what the apostles are expressing is the importance and the priority of ensuring that the people's physical needs are not being neglected. They don't say, hey, go away and find somebody else to deal with this. They say, hey, brothers, we've got to fix this problem. So they're not saying what we're doing is more important. They're also not saying we ourselves are more important. Or more spiritual. This is really about calling. It's about the calling of God. Their primary calling, as I said a moment ago, and let's use Paul's reference in Ephesians 4, because on the one hand, Paul greatly simplifies it, but on the other hand, he expounds upon the importance of the priority. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, God has given the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God has given the apostles to mature, to oversee, to train up, to shepherd his people. And if they neglect that calling and priority, John MacArthur in his commentary on Acts, he says this, if they neglect that calling and priority, they doom their congregation to languish in spiritual infancy. We don't want any part of that, none whatsoever. So they're not saying what we're doing is more important. They're not saying we're more important, but they also are not suggesting that there is a sacred part of life and a secular part of life. They're not proposing like this dualistic worldview of, oh, hey, we'll take care of all the sacred things. You take care of all the secular things, okay? These matters are all spiritual, all of them. You and I, um, they're all important. They're all spiritual, but they're all different. You and I, we have spiritual needs, We have emotional needs, we have physical needs, we have mental needs, but that does not mean that they are not all tied together. It doesn't mean that every aspect of our lives is not to be God-centered. They are all tied together. God made you a person, and he gave you your spirit. He gave you your mind. He gave you your emotions. You and me, sometimes we wonder what in the world they're doing, but they are all part of who we are, and they are all to be God-centered. So those are the things that are not being expressed here by the apostles. So with that, let's talk about the solution. The solution's in verse 3. Okay, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. We can't focus on all of these things and do any of them well. We can't focus on all of these things and effectively do what God is calling us to do. So let's appoint some who can. And this is the juncture where once again God begins multiplying servant leaders. If the church is growing, servant leaders will continue to not just be added to the body, but to multiply. So the apostles say, pick out from among you. I want you to notice that they don't just like recklessly or haphazardly say, hey, find some dudes to take care of this, okay? If they have a pulse and they're breathing, then, you know, hand it over to them. That's not what's said here at all, because they lay out some qualifications and some criteria for who these people are and what they would look like. Look at the first one. The first one, brothers, pick out from among you. Now, part of this can, can maybe seem like no-brainer, um, but it's not. The first thing that's being said here is, whoever's taking care of this, they've got to be believers, They've got to be like-minded with us for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. But they're actually saying something even more specific here. Who was being overlooked in the distribution? The Hellenist widows. So who do you suppose brought the news, the information, the complaints to the apostles? Probably Hellenist Jews. So the apostles are saying, hey, Hellenist Jews, you're gonna take care of the Hellenist widows. Who better to do it? They're from where you're from. They're part of who you are. No one will pay more attention to whether or not they're being taken care of than you will. So pick out from among you. This is why as churches, when we choose to say, this is my church family, this is the primary place where we are bearing one another's burdens. Because we should know one another. We should be in in the thick of one another's lives. Pick out from among you. And then he says, men of good reputation, men of good repute. This word in the Greek, which makes my tongue want to slap my brain, it's martyromenus. I'm only saying it once. It's from the root word martus, and here's why this is important. This word means witness, but what's peculiar about this word is that it has two uses, and not like, oh, it's used like this here, and it's used like this here. In this sentence and in this context, both uses are present. The first use of this word is that this is a person of whom a good witness is given, so in other words, let's say for some reason I get drugged to court. And they tell me, we need you to provide us with a character witness. Well, hopefully, um, I could ask like David and Garrett and Ginger to come and give a testimony of Brian is who he says he is. That his reputation is of integrity. This is a person who a good witness can be given about. But here's the other use. This is also a person who is a good witness. Now, what application or relevance would that have with new believers in Christ or right here as the gospel is beginning to spread and a New Testament church is beginning to grow? What's being said here is these need to be people who Their life and their mouth are about voicing who Jesus Christ is. These people, not only does a witness need to be able to be given about their character and their life, but their life ought to be a witness that they have been transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. So whatever it is they're going to be helping and taking care of, they understand that the first and foremost priority in that is the hope of the gospel, a good witness. They go on. Full of the Spirit. This means that there's evidence in every aspect of this person's life that they are being consumed, controlled, and ruled over by the Spirit. But you'll notice that the apostles don't stop there. They say, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Do they need biblical knowledge? Yes. Do they need theological understanding? Yes. But they also need the discernment of how that fleshes itself out in everyday life. I've met some folks before that they know way more Bible than maybe all of us in this room put together but you may not see it being lived out in their life. I will tell you that full of the spirit and of wisdom, I don't know that there's any greater place to see whether or not that's present in someone's life than when they have the opportunity to serve someone else. When when you see a, a Christian faced with the opportunity of helping someone else that they're gonna get nothing out of, That's when we have the opportunity to show, is the discernment there to see Jesus' words being lived out in our lives. So, they give the criteria. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. What do they do? Who are these men? Verse 5 what they said pleased the whole gathering. Everybody was like, that's a great idea. Let's pray. And then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. They set those men before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Friends, What you've witnessed right here is the first ordination of deacons. This is the introduction of deacons into the life of the church. So, little review. Problem. People's needs are being overlooked. And dissension and division are like looming over the church because of it. Solution, select those whose character reflects the servant leadership of Christ and put them in charge of it. Now here's the thing, when there's a problem and through seeking out the Lord's will, through understanding that God's sovereignty, he's ordained everything that we face. And through seeking him out, we understand that he's providing a solution to that problem. What's always gonna come with it is results. Problem, solution, results. So what are the results here? Disciples continue to multiply. The church continues to grow. Verse seven, The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We are just halfway through the sixth chapter of Acts, and I hope that you're noticing a pattern here. You see, in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, we're told that as Pentecost happens and all these people come to the Lord, there's 3,000 believers. And then it tells us in Acts 2 verse 47 that the Lord continued adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Chapter four, verse four. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. At that point, the church has gone from about 3,000 to somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 15,000. The church faces persecution And then what happens? Verse 32, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul backfired on Satan. Church continues to grow. Chapter five, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord's multitude of both men and women. Chapter five, verse 42. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Chapter six, verse one, the disciples were increasing in number. Chapter six, verse seven, again, just for fun. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Friends, the church faced growing pains but you know what the beauty of growing pains is? Growth. Depth and breadth. And you can't separate the two. See, we got a lot of churches that maybe are 10 miles deep and don't go anywhere. There's probably a lot of churches that are 10,000 miles wide and go nowhere below the surface. God says, "Um, this is not an either or, it's a both and. We're going deep and wide. Those growing pains are a beautiful thing because they show us we're growing, but they bring these pains along with them. Friends, over the last two years, our pastors and elders have been praying for, About this we've been praying we've been reading we've been discussing repeat praying reading discussing repeat Asking the question Do we need deacons? Here's the first church They needed them Maybe we need them as well And lord if so what does that look like? Somebody might say Well, so like, why does it even take any thought? Well, let me be honest with you and tell you that most of our pastors and elders, we come to the table with at least a small amount of baggage that in our lifetimes and in our experiences, we've been in churches where deacons were something other than what they were biblically supposed to be. I really don't know how it got there, but I will tell you that the two Baptist churches, the one that I grew up and started in ministry in, and then the one that I was in before I came here, at junctures in both of those churches, the deacons were more of this ruling and manipulating board rather than a group of servant leaders. I praise God and thank Him that in both of those churches, those things have radically and drastically changed. But so you can understand us coming to the table and being a bit apprehensive of, well, we've seen where this can go, Lord. But there are also times when we have to put our experiences lower down on the priority list than the mandate of the word of God. The first deacons were appointed out of a need in the life of the church. But here's what's Particular about this. This wasn't just an unmet need in the life of the people, it was an unmet need with the pastors and elders as well. Because The people were in need of being taken care of. The pastors and elders were in need of someone coming alongside them and making sure it wasn't being neglected. So you can look at this and realize these men, they were coming forward to provide a double blessing to the church, essentially. We want to bless and serve the people. And in doing that, we're going to bless and serve the pastors and elders as well. And so we have been praying, Lord, Lord, Are there needs going unmet in our church? Are there things being neglected? Are there things being overlooked? Are there things not receiving enough attention? And along with that, praying, and Lord, are there those among us that you are raising up to serve alongside us in meeting those needs? Over the last six months or so, Um, we have come to some clear, unified conclusions and affirmations. The first is, we need deacons. Period. Because the Bible mandates it in the New Testament church, but also because we very clearly see in the context of our church where we need them. The next thing I would affirm to you is we believe that we clearly see those among us who are qualified, men and women. Now, I just threw some of you a curveball. Brian, didn't you just preach like 85 times that the Bible is clear, pastors and elders is specifically Designed for men. Yes, I have. That's what the New Testament teaches us over and over again. But all throughout the New Testament, the book of Acts, and elsewhere, we see one instance after another after another where women were placed in the role of deacon. And so I will tell you that we we see people, men and women, in this church who are qualified. for this role. But now that leads me to saying this. Qualified. Does not automatically. Or necessarily mean called. I've said this before. And I will probably be say it again. In the seven years that we have had elders here at the brook. There have been a number of men that we have gone to. And we have said we. We the pastors and elders clearly see that you are called, or excuse me, you are qualified to be a, an elder. And those men came back to us just as confidently and said, but I need you to know I do not feel the call of God on my life to this. And the reason why this is so important is that what this role of deacon does share with pastors and elders is the seriousness with which God places over those who choose to accept it the role of deacon is a significant privilege and responsibility because this is not just about someone coming forward and saying oh hey you need somebody to take care of that I'm game put me down on the list This is about someone who is coming forward saying, I feel the call of God on my life, not only to serve the people of God, but to serve alongside our pastors and elders in seeing that this doesn't go unmet. And in doing it, I understand that my life, which this ought to be the case for every single one of us as a Christ follower But in putting myself in this role, I am putting a much higher level of scrutiny over my life that my character will reflect Jesus. It's a significant privilege and responsibility. But we believe that we need deacons. We believe we see those among us who are qualified and we believe that it's time to begin moving forward. Over the next few weeks... I'm going to be sharing more with you about these specific needs and areas within our congregation. But I want to share one of them with you this morning so you will have an idea of what we're even talking about. And I share this one, number one, because it's probably one of the most important. But number two, it's right here in front of us today. Um, we are praying that the Lord will bring forward some people who feel called to serve our church in the area of our ordinances. There are two things that we observe together um, that are significant to being a body of Christ followers in his church, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. Uh, In my almost nine years here at the brook, I am very, very grateful that we have always had someone who has been willing to come forward and say, hey, I'll help fill the cups. I'll help bring the bread in. Um, we've had different people over that, the course of that time. But here's what we're praying for. We, will, we are praying that God will raise somebody up that sees that this is an enormous, significant act of ministry. Friends, when we come together and we take the cup and we take the bread and we remember what Christ did for us, this is one of the highest symbols that we have that we participate together in uh, of what Christ has done and what he's going to do. I can't lead you in taking communion if someone doesn't prepare it. So in taking that on, you're not only serving the body, the church, you're serving the pastors and the elders as well. That's one example of just many of the areas that we're going to be putting before you. But friends, we believe that there is great potential for the Lord to raise up servant leaders, to serve not only alongside our pastors and elders, but to serve our pastors and elders and serve our body at the same time. And in doing those things, grow our church and advance the kingdom of God. We are growing and we are grateful for it. We feel some of those growing pains, but we are grateful for them because they are an evidence that Jesus is our foundation and our builder. So we want to ask you to join us in praying that the Lord would call out, raise up, and equip servant leaders among us. Let's pray together. Lord, first of all, we Pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you today for victory over sin and death. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that one of the ways that we have been given the opportunity, the privilege of of showing that there is nothing in this world that we value more than you is by serving one another. Lord Jesus, you said the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Lord, we pray that as your church, as your people, you would empty us of ourselves today. Lord, where our our grip is tightly wound around things of this world, we pray you would loosen it today. Father, if we are enslaved to bitterness, Lord, would you free us today? if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ we've been praying for you and we want you to know that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead so that you might have life that you might be brought back to the relationship with God the Father that you so desperately need. In Romans 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm praying that the Spirit of God is drawing you in. And I encourage you today, in a few moments and and even after the service ends, some of our pastors, elders, and leaders will be in the back. They would love to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to follow Christ. If you're here this morning and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, and we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus told his disciples the night before he died, every time you take this bread, remember my body was broken for you. Every time you take this cup, remember my blood was poured out for you. No one took it from me. I laid it down. I gave it willingly for you. So I encourage you, whether you come um, alone or with a friend or with your family, take a moment to reflect on what Christ has done only by his blood that we are saved. Lord Jesus, we proclaim that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, We thank you for the opportunity to reflect and remember today that our life and our hope is found in you.